HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. I think the beauty of condiments is they're accessible and they can teach you so much about different cultures. And even if you do need to save up to buy that two, three, five dollar jar, it's something that you're able to do if you really, really want to after like, even if you have to save for weeks, but you do really want to try this. It's not like it's a Michelin star meal that's going to cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars. It's a little taste of an entire culture. And I think that's what's so beautiful about it. If you spend much time on TikTok, you might recognize that voice as Condiment Claire. I myself am not really on TikTok, but I do have a fridge that is bursting with jars and bottles and pouches of all sorts of condiments, sauces, and related delights. This week on Meat and 3, we explore the universal phenomenon that is the condiment. These flavors can connect us to local cultures or transport us across the globe. We meet the man behind the Hot Ones hot sauce, hear about a supply shortage gripping an entire nation, and more. I'm Matt Patterson, and this is Meat and 3 on HRN. Meat and 3. Meat and 3. Meat and 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and 3. When it comes to sauce, some like it hot. First up, Sarah Mathis talks all things spicy with Noah Chamber, the founder of Heatness, a hot sauce specialty store. You might know Heatness, that's heat as in hot, from the hit YouTube series Hot Ones, a show where celebrities are faced with wings doused in increasingly hot hot sauce while being interviewed. Under the spicy assault, they become desperate. <coughs> Genghis Khan just rode through my tonsil. Sweaty. <laughs> and tearful. Yeah, on that journey. Like, Sorry. have you found the one yet? Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. And the brilliance of it is that their answers feel more raw and real than the ones they might offer on a more buttoned-up TV interview. And Heatonist is the purveyor of these disarming sauces. 
Very spicy food is no longer a regional appetite, in part thanks to the globalization of cuisines that use chilies liberally, like Mexican and Korean food. And though people were undoubtedly challenging themselves to eat spicy food before the internet age, the internet has provided both a venue to compete and a rich coffer of documentation of the chase for the hottest foods. For example, the subreddit rspicy was created back in 2010. Scrolling through today, you'll find homemade hot sauce recipes, hot sauce eating challenges, and all manner of memory. This community finds endless humor in the pain incurred while testing one's mettle against the spiciest of the spicy. It was on the precipice of this spice culture's entrance into the mainstream that Noah Chamberg started selling hot sauces with the idea that you should be able to try before you buy. Was it the same time that... Beyonce was singing about hot sauce in my bag swag and the Sriracha factory was in the news for getting shut down in California because their fumes and Hillary Clinton was you know, talking about carrying chili peppers in her purse on Z100 and you know it was just hot sauce had a moment and then everyone kind of realized wait a minute you too you too everybody Noah sourced small batch hot sauces made with high quality natural ingredients from all over the world he started out with a push cart at farmer's markets, then opened a tasting room in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, then Chelsea Market, and an online store. The obvious success of the concept notwithstanding, I was impressed by Noah's boldness in opening such a narrowly focused store. I wanted to know, was he afraid that his idea would fall flat? His answer seemed to be, not really. And in part, his confidence was inspired by a molecule you can only find in chilies, capsaicin. This molecule tricks your uh, nerve receptors in your mouth and your nose, your eyes, and your skin into thinking that you're actually being physically burned, like by fire. And your brain responds to this dangerous situation by releasing serotonin, endorphins, and adrenaline to help you deal with this dangerous situation. And you get hooked on that. And as your brain gets more and more used to it, you need more and more to do it, and you just become addicted to hot sauce. But beyond just the thrill of chasing that spice-induced high, Noah thinks of hot sauce in a more holistic way. For me, it's not a meal without hot sauce. Some things, of course, you know, going out to a nice restaurant, if you got to read the room. Um, but for the most part, I'm always looking to have hot sauce with food. It's kind of like seeing a movie in color and then seeing it in black and white. I know that there could be more to this. You know, there's a dimension missing. And Heatness reflects this culinary ethos. In store, they offer the services of a hot sauce sommelier. Though the name is tongue-in-cheek, these hot sauce experts are ready to engage hot sauce aficionados and newbies alike in conversations that illuminate the ingredients, farmers, and flavors behind the sauces. And this dialogue will soon be expanding beyond Heatness storefronts as they prepare to open their next big project, a farm in the Catskills. People will actually be able to come and visit to learn about growing chili peppers and different types of peppers and um, to pick their own and to have some great food. But really what it's about is showing what makes our products unique and special is that, you know, any old hot sauce might have peppers and vinegar and salt and garlic in it. But what makes ours special is the quality of peppers. And what makes the peppers so great is the health of the plants and what makes the plants healthy is the soil that they grow in. And what makes the soil so special is the environment and the biome that's in there and really getting your fingers in there and seeing what it's made of. If you thought chili peppers in New York, we at HRN were similarly surprised. 
but it's actually not unheard of. The Northeast produced about 10% of the U.S.'s pepper crop in 2017, and with longer, hotter summers caused by climate change, it follows that chili cultivation would expand northward to match the globalized demand for spice. Though New York is a long way off from being the next California or New Mexico in terms of pepper production, one thing's for sure. You can sate your capsaicin needs at the Heatness Chili Farm when it opens in the summer of 2023. While climate change expands the potential growing region for hot peppers, it simultaneously threatens the seeds essential to cultivating a different sort of spice. Aviva Futornic takes us to France, where the shortage of one beloved condiment has the nation reeling. Supermarket shelves empty. Signs limiting shoppers to one per person. Rumors of a burgeoning black market. This isn't the panic-induced toilet paper shortage of March 2020. C'est la pénurie de moutarde de Dijon en France. The 2022 Dijon mustard shortage. At the beginning of summer before I came to France, I was getting sent articles, now that I'm known as the condiment girl, articles about there being a mustard shortage. That's Claire Deneux from the beginning of the show. She often posts TikToks from her dad's house in the French countryside. This summer, however, one notable ingredient was missing. In London, I had not honestly experienced any of this mustard shortage, but obviously I was a little perplexed. But I made some funny videos here and there about how there was a mustard shortage and how I'd ordered eight little jars online just to be sure that I wouldn't run out. But I didn't really take it super seriously necessarily. And then a week later, I was in France and my dad and I went to the grocery store and I realized a shelf that usually had hundreds of Dijon mustard was empty. And on those shelves were just little signs saying, please limit yourself one per customer. And this was end of May, early June. Flash forward, we're September now. I went to the grocery store this morning. There is still no mustard, and it still says one per person. Since the start of summer, Dijon mustard has been missing from supermarket shelves across France. I spoke to Lindsay Tremuda, a journalist and author based in Paris, about the causes of the shortage. It really can be explained by several factors. Obviously, there's climate change, which I think is the factor that most people have potentially read about. There's the war in Ukraine, ongoing war. And then there's just the consumption of mustard by the French people, which is far, far superior um, to any of the European neighboring countries. As Lindsay says, a perfect storm of climate and political disaster collided to create this shortage. In summer 2021, an extreme heat wave hit Western Canada, slashing brown mustard seed production by over 50%. Although named after its town of origin in northeast France, the majority of Dijon mustard seeds are grown in Alberta and Saskatchewan. One of the things I would highlight as well is that, you know, the French were very surprised, I think, to learn that just because Dijon mustard is thought to come from Dijon in Burgundy that it couldn't possibly be made anywhere else. But it is not like champagne, for example. It is not an AOC, an appellation d'origine contrôlée. For products with a controlled destination of origin like champagne, all steps of production must be completed in a designated geographical area within France. Dijon is not one of these products and can be produced anywhere. And then the other issue, I think, is a huge factor, is the sheer consumption um, that goes on in this country. The French are enormous mustard consumers. Dijon mustard is a pantry staple in French homes. 
To my knowledge, the obsession with Dijon mustard is one of, you know, very good branding and, and historical uh, longevity. Amora is another group owned by Unilever, and Amora also has a kind of very interesting place in the collective imagination because the glass jars that are used for Amora usually have kind of like childlike illustrations on them. If, if not, they're clear, but they're a very specific shape. And so what you notice is that people reuse those glass jars. And in so many French homes, if you open the cupboard, you'll see sort of a collection of these more colorful, illustrated versions of the Amora glass jars. And they, and they really do become a fixture of, of the French household. According to a July article from the Figaro, a French daily newspaper, one kilogram of Dijon mustard per person per year is consumed in France. For Claire, Dijon mustard is part of her daily life. I was raised in between Los Angeles and France, and I grew up in a very European household. We had a lot of French meals. And in France, it's very normal to have a good Dijon mustard on the table for every single meal, whether that's eating it with eggs, eating it with a sandwich, eating it with steak, chicken, fish. Really, you have Dijon mustard with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's just a staple ingredient that you use like salt almost. It's that widespread. So how are mustard businesses surviving amidst this shortage? My name is Eric Giesbrecht. I am uh, an owner and operator of a company called Metaphor Foods, which is uh, primarily a wholesale company in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Eric is a chef who also operates Brassica Mustard under the umbrella of Metaphor Foods. I thought I was going to be able to make it through with what I had from the year previous. But I ran out, and I had to buy at the peak of the market in spring of this year, so six months after the harvest. And my prices for the seed was 400% what I paid previously. I decided to eat the difference in the cost mostly for the retail product that I was putting in jars and selling to you know grocery stores and, and smaller meat shops and stuff. But for the wholesale, where my margins were so much smaller, I, I had to increase the prices. You know, I was charging $25 a pail previous and I had to go up to 44. Eric's business survived the shortage by selling to local chefs. The chefs were having such a hard time getting the product that they usually have, which is the stuff coming back from France <laughs> that is sold cheaper than what I can produce at. And that product was just not coming in. And the major food distributors like Gordon Food Services and Cisco, they didn't even have product on hand. So the chefs were kind of like, well, we'll buy yours, which is actually not that much more expensive than what we were paying before. And it'll be local product, which is kind of handy. Let's break down the mustard supply chain. Mustard seeds are largely grown in Western Canada and sent to France for production. Once produced, companies send their finished Dijon product around the world. The bulk of the shortage hit conglomerate-owned mustard brands like the multinational company Unilever. Unilever owns both Mai and Amora, two of the most widely available and affordable Dijon mustards in France. I think the biggest suffering, so to speak, was felt on the side of the consumer. What comes into focus with this shortage is the fragility of beloved flavors. Despite the hyperlocality of its branding, Dijon is a global condiment vulnerable to supply chain and environmental shocks. The global reach of condiments also means that we, the consumer, have access to a global network of flavor. You're starting to see shelf space for these products. And so I think the more they're incorporated into non-French or sort of contemporary French restaurants in big cities, the more likely people might be inclined to buy them for their homes. 
While something as iconic as Dijon may not be replaced, the Dijon mustard shortage of 2022 offers up the chance to reflect on the origin of essential condiments and the world of flavor packed inside an 8-ounce jar. And luckily for the Dijon lovers out there, it's been a good year. The production levels will be close to what was uh, achieved previously in former years. So I think the price will come back down and because the supply will, uh, will be replenished. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. This episode is supported by HRN business member, Food Karma Projects. Dedicated to community building by creating unique food events that showcase the best local food, chefs, beer, and wine. After a successful trip to Boston, Bowl of Zolay is coming home to Bushwick, Brooklyn. The festival aims to spotlight heritage pozole and celebrate the vibrant culture of agave spirits like mezcal, tequila, and sotol. And to pay it forward, each chef will be donating bowls of pozole to City Harvest, New York City's largest food rescue organization. Bowl of Zolay takes place on Thursday, October 20th at 99 Scott Studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. To purchase tickets and for more information, visit bowlofzole.com. That's B-O-W-L-O-F-Z-O-L-E.com. Food Karma Project supports HRN's creative, educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Welcome back to Meet and Three. So I've seen many a McDonald's in my life, and I don't think I've ever seen a line out the door, certainly never snaking around the block. But it's happened across the country all at once and on more than one occasion. And the cause? Sauce. Welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order? Yeah, I'd like to get a 10-piece McNugget and uh, a bunch of the Szechuan sauce, like as much as you're allowed to give me. You just heard a clip from Rick and Morty, the popular Adult Swim TV show that reinvigorated a national craze around a McDonald's dip, Szechuan sauce. Rick and Morty is an adult animation series featuring a universe-hopping grandpa-grandson duo. In this episode, The Rick Shank Redemption, genius Grandpa Rick is confronted by a Galactic Federation agent who is tapping his brain to retrieve some of Rick's most deeply kept secrets. In 1998, they had this promotion for the Disney film Mulan, where they where they, they, they created a new sauce for the McNuggets called Szechuan Sauce, and it's delicious. And then they got rid of it, and now it's gone. This is the only place we're going to be able to try it, is in my memory. In the original release of the sauce in 1998, a Happy Meal came with a toy, nuggets, and the option of the Szechuan dipping sauce. It's supposed to have Chinese-inspired flavors with hints of soy, garlic, and ginger, but it has no spice, which is signature to the cuisine, in the Sichuan province of China. The Rick Shank Redemption aired on April 1, 2017. In October of that year, roughly five years ago now, McDonald's brought back the sauce by popular demand for just a single day. The re-release caused fans to flood stores across the nation, demanding a taste. It's chaos at a McDonald's over, of all things, 
Szechuan sauce. What on earth is going on here? Frenzy ensued. Apparently, certain McDonald's who said that they would have it, didn't have it, or ran out. So it's circulating on Twitter with the hashtag uh, Szechuan Gate, hashtag give us the sauce. Rick isn't the only one willing to go to the ends of the earth. I mean, universe for the sauce. That's what this is all about, Morty. That's my one-armed man. A Rick and Morty fan found a pack of the sauce from its original release in 1998 and sold it on eBay for $14,700. And for only the fourth time ever, in March of 2022, McDonald's made the cult classic available, but through mobile order only while supplies lasted. And they did not last long. With over 20 years between the original release and the latest, what often gets lost in the sauce is the overt racism behind McDonald's original campaign. Okay, when I say McDonald's Chicken McNuggets... I know, I hit the gong! In honor of Disney's new movie, The ad features two kids hitting a gong, chicken nuggets in Chinese takeout containers, and jasmine flowers all set to a backdrop of the Chinese flute. In the 90s, nuggets were packaged and branded with terrible phrases like McNuggets are Chinamite. Not to mention, some sources say that the original story of Mulan took place in North China in the Northern Wei period, but Sichuan is in the Southwest. Even divorced from the 90s ad campaign, McDonald's rendition is a far cry from real Sichuanese cooking, which is famous for its spice and use of peppercorn. What's up, everybody? We are back with another video with my Chinese grandpa. Hello. You like the sauce? No. <laughs> Why? Does it taste Chinese to you? No. Little sweet and very mild. So we're gonna ask the Chuan people whether or not this is legit. McDonald's? Oh, okay. <laughs> it's so sweet. It's no peppercorn. <laughs> In the end, McDonald's Sichuan sauce has nothing to do with Sichuan culture and everything to do with a cult craze. Rick might wait nine seasons for the sauce, but some fans would wait for years. For our final story, we travel back to the 1970s to hear Michael Davenport's take on spaghetti sauce. Michael was the host of The Shameless Chef, a pioneering food radio show that HRN was delighted to add to its archives last year. In this story, Michael shares his unorthodox recommendation to level up your pasta sauce by throwing out the tomatoes. Pasta lovers of the world, lend me your ears. This show is for you. I'm one of you. I like the pasta, the noodle, or any of its relatives with a favor that verges on fervor. <laughs> this is the shameless chef with a couple or so ways to fix pasta without tomato sauce. Are you ready? There's this to be said for the average spaghetti sauce. It is generally lousy. It's either overdone, and the pasta is usually overdone too, over-seasoned or so acidulous with tomato paste, tomato juice, and tomato sauce that my gorge rises. Now, pasta is delicate, light, healthful, generally delightful. Anybody can do spaghetti sauce, and some make a career of it. When I hear the phrase, oh, you should taste George's spaghetti sauce, I run in the opposite direction as fast as I can. Spaghetti, as she is normally done, is junk food that you make at home. Now, not being one to point out an evil without suggesting a remedy, I would like to suggest the following. 
spaghetti alla burro, spaghetti alla pesto, and spaghetti olio e olio. And here's how you do them. Spaghetti alla burro has nothing to do with donkeys. It's done with butter. Simply that, lots of melted butter, about a half a pound melted, mixed with fresh parsley, finely minced, tossed over the pasta with just a touch of um, grated lemon rind or chopped green olives or sautéed chopped almond, almonds. That would do it, yeah. That's it, great. Yeah. Now, spaghetti al pesto. You need a mortar and pestle for this. See, pesto, pestle. Uh-huh. You mash up fresh basil, a clove or so of garlic, about a quarter cup of olive oil. And when it's good and pasty, add a lot of melted butter and dress the pasta with this mixture. Oh, yeah, heaps of freshly grated cheese. Mamma mia. Now, spaghetti olio e olio. Translation, oil and garlic. And this is for the most devoted garlic lovers only. <laughs> you crush four cloves of garlic or more and cook them in about a quarter cup of olive oil for about a minute or three. Uh, discard the garlic. You now have garlic oil. You add a lot of melted butter and as much freshly chopped parsley. A lot of it. And over the pasta it goes. Oh, cheese is called for here. Oh, yes, uh, clarets too. The, the parsley won't do it. So there. This is Michael A. Davenport, The Shameless Chef. When it comes to spaghetti, you can take your tomato sauce and ciao. Learn more about the guests and topics we touch on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Sarah Mathis, Aviva Futornik, Bianca Garcia, Anna Canny, Dylan Hoyer, and Mike Schreiber. Meet and Three is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Katie Moseman Wadler, and me, Matt Patterson. If you enjoyed traveling back in time with The Shameless Chef, the entire series is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Our audio engineer for this episode is Kevin Chang Barnum. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.